This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Room Description. Convex versus Concave Hollow Earths. Recommendation Engine Encore. And Chaos Magic. Three Cheers for Master is a new card game from Atlas Games. In Three Cheers for Master, the good news is that Master has conquered the world! Hurrah! The bad news is that now Master is depressed. Turns out he was not actually prepared for that. What is an evil overlord to do after he achieves his life's ambition? But that's on him. What about you? You're a lieutenant in Master's army, and when Master's bummed, it's the minions who suffer. The good news is that Master's gone away. The bad news is that Master's going to come back. The good news is you've got a plan. The bad news is, it's not a very good plan, because frankly, you're not all that smart. Your plan is this. You're going to coach all of Master's ravenous, homicidal, war-hungry minions to pile on top of each other into cheerleading towers. Then, when Master comes back, the minions in your pile will all wave their pom-poms and penance and hoot and holler and cheer. And maybe Master won't kill you. At least if your tower is best, maybe Master won't kill you. Because everyone else is building their own towers and trying to get Master not to kill them. You see how bad things are? It gets worse. The problem with the towers is that the minions in your tower all want to kill each other. And when the minions at the bottom of the tower kill each other, the minions above them fall. And when falling minions are heavy, that's with a capital H must be a game term, they kill the minions they land on. And hungry minions eat weak minions even when they're not feeling violent. And claustrophobic minions die whenever they're surrounded by other minions. And you can never tell which direction a ninja minion is going to attack. At least flying minions can remain above the fray. Unless someone's a heavy minion on top of them, and they fall and get crushed. And die. Three Cheers for Master is a new card game from Atlas Games. It's in stores now. Look alert, minion! Master is coming! The clatter of dice, the crunch of Doritos, the smiling countenance of Peter Frampton, the feel of shag carpeting under our feet, tell us we have entered the gaming hut and... The previously alluded to feel of shag carpeting under our feet tell us that we are interested today in the set dressing, the things about the room, the paneling, the old VCR, the things that make a room interesting and how to describe it. Robin, um, obviously set dressing goes way back to the original read this boxed text to your players stuff. And when the box text is good, it can actually work. Although I think that technique uh, fails more often than it succeeds, but how, aside from reading box text written by Robin Laws, can one describe an interesting room interestingly? Right. And you'll note, I don't write a lot of box text because I have the same uh, skepticism about that as uh, you do. And I try to write vividly for uh, the GM, but then always say, but be sure to paraphrase this. Mm -hmm. So set dressing, of course, goes back even further than box text into the uh, antecedent storytelling art forms. Uh, so you get it in actual literal sets in theater and then in movies. And of course, uh, you uh, used to get a lot of description of items uh, in particularly in pre 20th century fiction where uh, it was before photography and you had to kind of draw more of a word picture of everything. Uh, but for the sake of players, you want to when they're entering a space that you want them to imagine and engage with, you can, first of all, just 
sort of sketch things out. You don't have to stop the action when it is already interesting in order to say, well, now you've entered a vestibule and there's a banner and there's a, a dragon uh, on the banner and the ba and it's gold and red and there's a parquet flooring and you don't want to hit them with details that are going to stop the story. The whole point of set dressing is to evoke a mood and a sense of time and place the way that your description of the shag carpeting and the paneling and, and so forth at the top of each gaming hut segment do and then um, move on. So it's, I think, stronger to focus on uh, one or two things and to know when uh, to introduce this sort of detail, like often at the uh, when they enter a, a new place, not just a new room in the mansion that they always hang out in, but they, you know, they've gone into, let's say, the the hovel of the uh, goat magician who they're trying to get something out of. And you want to have something about that environment uh, create a mood and also give information about the character they're going to be talking to. So you can say, well, there's uh, goat skulls everywhere in this sort of circular kind of wigwam-shaped uh, metal hut, and there's also a bunch of uh, sausages hanging from the ceiling and, and drying. And you can assume from that that they're uh, goat sausages, but uh, but you don't know. And other than that, there's just sort of a, a moldy carpet on the ground, and he's sitting there cross-legged in front of a brazier. So that's a bunch of physical details that you can quickly reel off, and they paint a picture not just of the space and of the mood, but they tell you about that character. And so you're not exhaustively going into any, everything you can possibly come up with, but you're starting with the uh, the figure who uh, defines that space and uh, fleshing them out through visual details. And you could just as easily say, oh, it's a wheeled old grody uh, hovel, and uh, this guy's wearing a goat horns, and he's snaggletooths, and he's bent over, and his clothing are rags. You could achieve the same effect by uh, describing him, but of course that would be a different segment of a different uh, episode of this podcast. So, Ken, what are the what would you describe as the things that you want to get across economically about a physical space that the characters are uh, interacting in, but not having a fighting? Because I think those roles become a little different. I think if they're interacting in it, um, obviously the scene has a purpose, right? The scene is there to provide information or it's there to provide tone if it's not there to provide a fight, right? Or it's there to sort of backstop a, uh, a character interaction, which is still going to sort down to tone or information. So you generally want, certainly as a first cut, you want the room to, to amplify and to reflect what it is that the purpose of the scene is. So if it's supposed to provide information you put into the, into the room, um, and, and say the information is there's danger further on, you can put into the, into the, into the scene, you know, portents and echoes. You can go so far as to do color in which the, the room is darker. The, it's dark red curtains instead of bright red curtains. Um, you, you describe things pointing toward, uh, what it is you want the scene to accomplish. And if the, if it literally is, it's an information scene, they have to go to the desk and search it for, uh, documents, then you start by saying it's, uh, it's a study. Um, it's a little bit cluttered, but obviously someone has come through and picked up, or maybe they were looking for something. Um, you can describe the, the, the windows, their, um, uh, diamond panes in, in glass, just the things that their first sensorium grabs. And then you end usually on what you want them to pay attention to. And there's an ornate Victorian roll top desk in the center. And they're like, aha, a roll top desk. That is clue fodder. And then they go after the desk. And then 
They, however, have in their head a sort of whole sense of the room. Um, if it's a tone, then there you can sort of go a little wilder because one of the things that I like to do with tone is, if it's possible, add things besides visual sense. So the stones feel cold even through your boots or um, you hear uh, the whistling of... Uh, of air through the, 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 the vents as the horrible, as the giant, uh, uh, ancient heater in the, uh, in the basement clangs and shudders and thumps like it's going to come apart at any minute. You hear the wheeze of the air through the registers. Um, you feel the, the puff of, of, of dry, of dryness as the, as you, as you open the, the sealed cabinet. Um, you smell something ideally. Um, your, your, you know, the smells are very, very powerful for containing, uh, and conveying information. And if you're in a, uh, a room with flowers or something. You can mention the heavy scent of the flowers and the bright scent of the flowers, both of which are legitimate things flowers can smell like. And already you've established tone very economically, but you've also put something into the player's head that they're not overused to. Because if everything is, there's a dark shadow in the corner, they're like, okay, I shine my light in the dark shadow. There's a lot of things that you sort of can reflexively put in places. And I like to unreflexively do things in tone and reflexively do things uh, for information, unless I'm dealing with players who are uh, familiar enough with me or have been in enough Victorian studies that I can then start doing the unreflective stuff uh, and and start saying, you know, there's a pattern of um, uh, of of, of uh, weird little uh, 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 tile friezes around the uh, ceiling of the room in a sort of uh, wainscot. Um, obviously, this uh, began maybe as a child's room before it became a study. And then they have a, a an aspect of the set that is uh, psychologically important, but doesn't necessarily feed onto any sort of immediate action. But the room is now more than just the ninth or 10th study they've gone into with a big Victorian desk. Right. And what you've done there is something really vital, which is that you have implied ongoing narrative through the room so that they can tell that this used to be used as a child's room and has been converted to a study. And so that, uh, maybe that matters, uh, maybe it doesn't, but it gives you the impression that this place has been lived in and it has a history and they can detect its uh, changes over time. Uh, one don't in that regard, especially if you're writing uh, professionally, is sometimes I, I have seen uh, people say, 700 years ago, uh, this room was used by the elves to store their decanters. and uh, uh, But then the orcs came and, and so there's all of... And the question is... How do the players know this? If there's some way for them to uh, cast a spell or, or sense the ghostly presence of the elves and their decanters, and it matters, that's one thing. But there is an awful lot of word spinning in certain uh, people's work that uh, they give no way for the players to interact with that information. So always start uh, not with the logic of the room or what it would really be used for or, or you know, hundreds of years of history that matter uh, not a whit, but rather what are the players going to do there and or the player characters going to do there and how do they know that? So if you really want them to know about the elves, you have to give them information about that and find a way that what elves were doing 700 years ago is actually relevant. Another don't is don't include boring spaces that you are then going to expect the uh, GM or if you're the GM to describe. So maybe it's logical that there's a whole bunch of empty storage space. Well, don't spend a bunch of time coming up with ways of making that interesting if nothing is supposed to happen there. This contains there's... one die, four rats, and two copper pieces. Yeah, who cares? Right. You should just write down, 
another disused storehouse. The players, uh, player characters will glance into it briefly as they move along the corridor, and there's nothing going on. Or even you can say, the corridor leads past a number of doors uh, which uh, open onto disused storage, storage spaces, some of them dustier or more rat-infested than the others. Yes. Now, you do find the occasional player who loves to explore every single part of an environment and is perfectly happy to encounter cavernous chamber after cavernous chamber of nothing. But guess what? That's one player out of yeah. 500. Uh, that's not all the players in anybody's group. And it's usually someone who was taught well by early Dungeons and Dragons in which every room did have a potential encounter and it did have a potential treasure and it did have a potential trap. And, you know, winning the game meant getting the maximum amount of engagement out of each room. And, you know, they're, they think they're, they're not, they don't think they're griefing. They think that they're playing right because, well, you wouldn't have put a bunch of empty storehouses in because then there'd be nothing happening. So we have to just keep looking until story happens. And they may not even have internalized, uh, or, uh, they may have internalized that so much. They're not even thinking about, well, obviously there wouldn't be anything in this storeroom. They're, uh, thinking, uh, with their memories, not with the experience that's happening now. And that's another reason to provide elements uh, in the exciting rooms that cue people that something is happening here. And for the other ones, like you say, a couple of lines of um, uh, description that move you along. And ideally, right. that assume you've moved along, but even if you don't move along, you know, you can say bare, you can say empty, you can say dusty, you can say, uh, you know, rat hole. And most players take the hint after the second or third one of those. And I think that you can certainly make the reward of an interesting room more so interesting that they begin to learn different lessons. It doesn't take a lot of time to teach uh, people how to read you as a GM, especially if you're allowing yourself to be read, which is the whole point as far as I'm concerned. Right. And so don't make the mistake of strictly for realism purposes of getting them intrigued with something that you don't have anything to follow up on, right? So if you, uh, oh, well, this is the carpet room and there's a, a pile after pile of uh, old antique carpets. Well, chances are, if that's intriguing, oh, well, let's go and unroll all the carpets. Let's see which see one of them is the flying carpet. Clues on yeah. And it's like, oh, man. So, uh, you know, be uh, focused on the interesting spaces and dress them up and make them interesting and elide the uh, other ones as uh, much as you uh, possibly can. Um, other ways you can, uh, if it's a, uh, contemporary game, you can just, uh, find, uh, images in architectural magazines or on the internet or people's Pinterest pages of spaces and, uh, just use those. So that's evocative and you need to cast those photos, uh, correctly. So if you have a picture of an ultra modern office, you don't use that to describe the, uh, cluttered warren of the antiquarian, but uh, it does uh, immediately allow you to uh, invest everybody in uh, the scene and get them the emotions they need to be feeling and then move on to whatever it is that the, the scene is. And as we're moving more and more toward a world of ubiquitous tablets, you know, every, you know, the half the members of the group who have tablets can call it up on your drop mark page or whatever it is and uh, see it and uh, and move on. So we have more uh, tools now in order to uh, use that visual space. And I think there's even some uh, apps that uh, they're set up as uh, uh, furniture, uh, as uh, interior design uh, apps that allow you to move things around and create uh, stuff in a space. And you could, uh, if you're really enterprising, play with those and, you know, make your own uh, spaces out of them. But in most cases, 
where exactly the desk is in relation to the bookshelf doesn't uh, really matter. Now, uh, briefly, of course, if you're going to have a fight in an area, you want to add uh, more detail or at least the potential for more detail without necessarily describing it. So uh, if you have a hospital waiting room, uh, as for example in Feng Shui, whenever there's a, a fight scene, there's a bullet-pointed list of things that could happen during the fight, and there are suggestions of ways so that you as the GM and also the players, as they're encouraged to do in Feng Shui, can think things up to uh, insert into the scene. So you don't necessarily describe ahead of time that there is a fire extinguisher, but by you know logical inference, there's fire extinguishers everywhere. So when the player says, I grab a fire extinguisher and bonk the guy in the head with it, they can uh, do that. So you might want to add a few elements when you describe the w hospital waiting room at the beginning of the scene. And then as you describe the action, throw in more things in a way that makes the fight seem more interesting. Now, it depends on your game system. Some systems are very intent on saying, well, this is how much damage this kind of sword does versus this other kind of sword, and it matters in those games. So you're less free to have them deal out a useful amount of damage from a chair or a fire extinguisher. But in something loosey-goosey about that, like Feng Shui, uh, you can have the uh, players tear down the imaginary set decoration and throw it at the bad guys. Yeah, in uh, Night's Black Agents, and I forget if I stole this from you, uh, via feng shui or not, um, and or I may have stolen it from you via Armitage files, every one of the establishing shots, which are the sort of standard scenes you're going to run all the time, um, a motorcade, a ski lift, a bullet train, whatever, I, I made sure that every one of those has three things that can happen in a chase and three things that can happen in a fight in that place and that they are, will be scenic elements. So for example, if you have a fight in the meth lab, there's going to be a bunch of explosive chemicals around. There's a, a terrible visibility. Um, and there's, you know, some number of, uh, strung out meth heads who will also, uh, get themselves involved somehow. And there's other elements that I make sure with each of these establishing shots that can be slotted in or can at least begin to give the GM ideas for what to do once the inevitable fight does break out, once the inevitable chase tears through the bar or through the strip joint. Um, another thing that I did in Night's Black Agents is the list of possible stuff that shows up in a chase scene, depending on where it is. If it's a chase through a stereotypical Middle Eastern uh, souk, there's going to be um, tents collapsing. There's going to be scalding hot tea. There's going to be a brazier full of delicious grilled meats. There's going to be a guy with a scimitar, all kinds of stuff. If your chase is through an Eastern European uh, miserable post-communist factory, there's going to be a big chain to swing. There's going to be a button, to, a red button to push that starts up the deadly machinery. There's going to be a, 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 a pipe that shoots superheated steam. And all of these things, you just list them, and then you ha are primed with ideas for what can happen during a chase scene. And I think it's important to over-provide rather than under-provide. Three is the, like the minimum, and it's just picked to basically keep uh, the, the size of an establishing shot down to a, a, a digestible amount. But for a chase scene, I think you want to at least begin with maybe 10 or a dozen things that could go wrong or go exciting. And that may be the same for a, what you might call a marquee fight scene as opposed to a simple, uh, shoot the guard, move through into the much more exciting carpet room. Right. Because you're never reeling off every single element right. yeah. to the players at once. But you you're have just them all keeping all those in your, in your pocket. Box. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, I think uh, it's speaking of uh, set design, it's time to wander into our next uh, hut chamber and or segment and see how well appointed it might be.
It's time for another edition of Ask Ken and Robin, and this time around, uh, Roger B.W. asks one that uh, uh, normally, listeners, you'll note that I paraphrase heavily, but this one is rich in the loam of questions and depth, and so uh, maybe Ken will annotate the various parts of this question as his stage toward answering it. So here we go. Hollow Earth theories fall into two broad camps, the convex... There was a hollow earth, or at least a huge and extensive cavern network that we don't know about. And the concave. We are living on the inside surface of an air bubble within rock, mostly after Teed. Was this perhaps a misunderstanding of the term hollow earth, as one fringe believer talked to another? Uh, So, Ken, is there anything you need to uh, unpack for the listener who may not be as steeped in hollow earthology as Roger B.W. is before you proceed? Uh, well, the the question is going to turn on the career of Cyrus Reed Teed, the in, uh, discoverer of the truth that we live inside, as he put it. And uh, the, 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 the question of was he influenced by other hollow earth guys or did he come up with it out of his own exciting head? So uh, by did he live inside, you mean we live inside a hollow earth? We live inside a hollow earth, that the earth is uh, an endless amount of rock uh, extending in all directions uh, uh, in the sort of mystical version of Teedism, or Koreshianity, as he called it, because he named himself Koresh, just like other guys do every now and again. (laughs) Yeah. First of all, tip for the listener, don't name yourself Koresh. If you find yourself naming yourself Koresh, seek medical attention. Um, So let's, if we're talking about a particular uh, fringeologist, let's... uh, cite him in uh, in history and find out where where he's thinking up all his craziness. Well, you will, it will come as no surprise to any devotee of Ken and Robin talk about stuff that Cyrus Reed Teed was born in 1839 and grew up in Utica, New York, in the heart of what we have uh, come to know as the Burned Over District. So he's yet another exciting fellow, uh, head up by that mystical spatch of land and time. Uh, he, um, uh, began as a, uh, his father was a faith healer. He healed people of the black tongue plague, which sounds like something the orcs brought with them out of the hollow earth. Do, do we know what the black tongue plague was? I suspect it was, um, uh, <laughs> eating stuff uh, that you shouldn't have in upstate New York, but perhaps it was something caused by, uh, people digging the Erie canal nearby. Um, and his, uh, cousin was Joseph Smith. So the founder of the Mormons. So he's. Wired in, in a way, into the exciting world of alternative religion in the upstate New York area. I think that, uh, contra Roger B.W., Teed came up with We Live Inside out of his own head. Um, I don't, he may have run across the various hollow earth theories of Edmund Haley or other people. Uh, Haley of Haley's Comet, by the way, um, did the math and said, you know, the earth could be hollow. He didn't insist on it, but he didn't say, we don't know one way. I mean, in Haley's time, we didn't know what was inside the earth. Uh, the guys who guessed uh, rock and fire and the devil turned out to be pretty much right. Two thirds anyway. Um, <laughs> and Haley said, well, that's not necessarily true, which, um, you know, who can say? But uh, Teed definitely goes into the notion of we live inside through his religious convictions, not the other way around. He doesn't have the uh, bolt of the blue uh uh, discovery that we live inside a hollow earth after reading other hollow earth books. He has that because he believes that God cannot have created an infinite space, uh, with lots and zillions and billions of stars and zillions and billions of planets, because that would be too much for the human mind to comprehend. And since God makes man in his own image and he makes man deliberately to comprehend and control the universe, 
you can't have given him a universe he can't have control. So it has to be a human scale universe. There can only be one earth. And that's where Teed decides that, um, we are nurtured within, uh, the earth as of the womb of the great mother. Uh, and that is perhaps Teed's own contribution to biblical scholarship. Uh, and, and so yeah, hmm, I, yeah, I think uh, that, uh, without, without getting Freudian, uh, on everyone, I think you can get Freudian on Cyrus Reed Teed, that he was terrified of industry, terrified of modern science, um, tried to control it by doing electroalchemical experiments in the barn, but eventually realized that, nope, you have to climb back inside the womb and live there forever. And wouldn't it make more sense if the earth was already like that? So he's spared the messy indignity of being the only one who thinks that way. Right. And so the big blue thing up there that turns black at night is a painting. No, the big blue thing uh, that turns out there is the blue aura around the central sun. Um, the, the, the sun burns and just like a candle flame does, Robin, if you've done any science, you would know, uh, like a flame burns blue when it is hot. The sun burns very hot. That blue part of it is what colors the sky blue. And that is why the sky is blue. It turns dark at night because that's when the flame uh, goes out. So we're not rotating around anything. I don't think we're rotating around. Um, later Koreshians, I believe, have posited like half suns or a sun that orbits very closely around a, um, uh, a second body that eclipses it all the time. But much of Koreshianity basically believes, um, and there are, there are, what do I want to say? There are, um, there, are, there is a very rapid urge to drive Koreshianity into both the pseudoscientific and the religious directions. And so you can see diagrams of Koreshian hollow earths with, uh, the sun being one half lit and one half dark, like a piece of charcoal that is embers on one side, um, and, uh, and, and still dark on the other. I think that that might have been one that he sort of tries on for size. Um, eventually after people are like, seriously, where does the sun go? And he lives a long and I suppose happy life further confabulating his hollow earth theories. Uh, but by the time that, uh, Teed, uh, departs this scene, he has sort of created his own little community of people, the, um, uh, who, uh, believe in the holy city and build a giant, uh, device to measure, um, the, uh, interior curvature of the earth called the rectilineator. Um, there's a guy named Gustav Damkohler, uh, who goes to, uh, basically, I think it's, uh, Tampa Bay or Fort Myers thereabouts. Um, and he, uh, he builds a giant, uh, commune, a Koreshian commune down there. Uh, and, uh, I think that Damkohler may be the guy who is the, uh, he's the tr me mechanism of transmission that gets, uh, Cyrus Reed Teed's Hollow Earth into the hands of, uh, the Ananerba and Himmler when Himmler, uh, says we should double check because if we're inside the hollow earth, we can bounce radar waves off the inside of it and find the British fleet on the other side of the hollow earth. Right. And that tells us something we've already explored about Himmler that, uh, he regarded this as a possibility. Yes. Well, Himmler, Himmler is one of those people Let's look into that. who, uh, like, um, uh, I forget which character it is in Alice, but could believe five impossible things before breakfast. Um, he was not, uh, a, a, uh, a prisoner of petty consistency, not our Himmler. Um, but the, uh, but the hollow earth of Teed sort of moves on and it always has to have this sort of weird mystical aspect to it and, and a very religious context in a way that, you know, John Cleve Sims, the guy who says, there's a hole at the North Pole, I'll climb down in it and claim it for America. 
doesn't have to because that's just geology. Um, but if you start believing in infinities of rock, you are immediately making a theological statement about the universe and you can't really duck and cover under that. So most Tedites or Koreshites tend to lean into the crazy. So they are, are they the first hollow earthers? Uh, I mean, I you've mentioned that Edmund Haley, uh, kind of thought that there might be such a thing, but in terms of the sort of Pelasudar style, style hollow earth, where there's another realm inside our realm and there's dinosaurs or, uh, um, Nordic Superman or whatever it is that you might find down there. Uh, where does that start? Well, obviously there's, um, you know, anciently there are, you know, beliefs that the earth has Tartarus in it, or it has fairies or it has something in it. The belief that there's another world under the ground, um, is, you know, it goes back to the, uh, to the Greeks and, and before, um, Athanasius Kircher, if you remember, um, believes that the world is honeycombed by caverns uh, that feed into a giant central vortex, uh, I think because he liked vortexes. Um, who doesn't? Who doesn't? Um, and that that explains earthquakes and weather and all kinds of things because it's this immense plumbing system under the earth. Uh, right. that, and that, the ones nearest to the surface have the giant rats and the centipedes, and then the next level is orcs, and then after that there's the bugbears. Exactly, because Kircher yeah. is, if anything, part of the old school renaissance. Yes. <laughs> anyway, um, Edmund Halley is the guy who says uh, there's a hollow earth and maybe there's a hollow earth inside the hollow earth and a hollow earth inside the hollow earth. Uh, this is a guy who has just discovered calculus and is probably or discovered that it exists. Obviously, Newton and Leibniz discovered it, but he's probably one of the first guys who got to use it for anything fun. But the the man who gave us the proper hollow earth with dinosaurs and and mammoths and whatnot is the, the, the aforementioned John Cleve Sims. Um, who was born in 1779 in New Jersey. He was a soldier. Um, uh, he was, um, I think he wound up being a captain. Um, and he uh, was in the War of 1812, uh, fighting against the hated British. Um, he then goes out and becomes a frontiersman. He's exploring new worlds. Um, and then as he goes out and explores uh, further and further into the West, he believes that um, gravity is wrong. And uh, gravity is not caused by mass, it's caused by aerial fluid, and that aerial fluid uh, forms in hollow spheres, and therefore, by logic, the Earth must be a giant hollow uh, sphere full of gravity, um, and if you can get to the North Pole, you can get down into it, and in that, because uh, the uh, gravity energy is so strong, the world will basically be lighter and uh, more full of giants than the regular world. Um, and so it all flows from that initial, premise. it all flows from the initial premise. If you do the math and John Cleve Sims, actually, he's got people who are petitioning Congress. They're like, dude, there's like, did you read this guy's book? There's a hollow earth and it's full of possibly giants and dinosaurs. Although we don't know what those are quite yet, but it's full of awesome stuff and we should conquer it and make it part of America. And eventually, it is because of Sims fans that America launches the first of its uh, polar expeditions. Um, and it's sort of like, oh, and also, if you see a hollow earth, make a note, uh, is is what it says. But, you know, it, the goal is to have polar expedition for America so you can uh, control whaling routes. And maybe they go down to the South Pole uh, to uh, look for, um, at that time, mythical southern continent, uh, which also may have a doorway to the hollow earth, depending um, but John Cleve Sims is a very in, important and influential fellow. And, uh, there's a guy who wrote a book called Simsonia that sort of popularized the hollow earth all over America. And then eventually all over the world. Um, when Vern sort of picks up Simsonia, he's like, this is a great idea. And he does voyage to the center of the earth. 
And uh, Ed Grice Burroughs, of course, never met a crazy idea he couldn't turn into a rollicking adventure story, having already done Theosophy as Barsoom. Uh, yeah, I don't know anyone else who, who uses that policy. Well, you know, once Edgar Rice Burroughs has done it, you pretty much just go on and write uh, stories about young orphans who meet other young orphans and explain that capitalism is bad. That's how literature works. <laughs> um, so, the, uh, so, so yeah, Simsonia becomes sort of the, the, the or document, if you will, of the proper Hollow Earth with dinosaurs and uh, giant glowing mushrooms. Well, that one seems the one that where the uh, how to turn this into a crazy adventure is self-explanatory. Uh, <laughs> if you don't know, read Burroughs. Um, so uh, what uh, can we wrest out of a world in which uh, Teed's uh, cosmology is correct? Well, I mean, I think that the fun thing to do with Teed... With, with the Hollow Earth and, and these guys, the, with, the, with the great rectilinear and the rest of that, you set up a, a point in time. You're doing a, um, you're, you're doing sort of an occult game. You, you set up a, an adventure where you go down to the ruins of the rectilinear there in Estero, Florida. And for whatever reason, your physicist character, your mad scientist character recognizes that the rectilinear is correctly measuring the curvature of the inner Earth, right? That at least here, you are inside the Hollow Earth. And what it becomes, it can be sort of a dueling paradigms type game where you're trying to keep uh, rational science alive uh, and and prevent the, the 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 world from enclosing itself around you. Um, maybe there's bad guys who are trying to move us into the Hollow Earth, or maybe the Hollow Earth of Teed, because it exists sort of superimposed over our world, is the source of all kinds of magic weirdness, and it's guys from a dimension that is literally sort of the reverse of our dimension. That's e eternal rock around a central tiny bubble of space. And that, that explains that, that explains where your demons come from, or maybe that's where your angels come from. Uh, and you can move in and out of that hollow earth and, you know, drill as far deep into Koreshianity as you like for the flavor of the particular demons and angels that you're encountering. I like the idea of the hollow earth being a world superimposed on our world that we do live inside at the same time that we live outside and that all it, is uh, all that it takes to move from one to the other is a walk along the rectilinear or a um, uh, full uh, exploration of the of the flaming sword, the last prophetic work of Cyrus Reed Teed in 1892. Well, if I hear the word rectilinear again, I'm going to make a joke that does not fit the elevated tone of this podcast. So it's time to move to the next segment. were the amiable chuff 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 the excited clickety clack tell us we're in nothing but the most friendly of engines the friendly recommendation engine and as it spins around and and uh and and chunters through its it, its business it spits out recommendations of all sorts uh from us to you uh robin uh, you have, I believe, the first of the products of the recommendation engine to show off with your uh, professional hand model moves. So go to it. Uh, as is my wont, I'm going to start off with a movie. This one is called The One I Love. It's from 2014, directed by Charlie McDowell. And it's sort of an indie uh, 
two-hander with uh, Ted Danson at the beginning to make a third character. It features uh, Elizabeth Moths, who you know from Mad Men, and Mark Duplass, who you know from the show Togetherness and many indie movies, including the uh, indie time travel movie Safety Not Guaranteed, which we both really liked. And this one is sort of in that vein. It's a Twilight Zone-style uh, emotional uh, drama uh, with uh, comedic elements. And uh, Moss and Duplass play a uh, couple who are kind of on the rocks, and they go see Ted Danson as their uh, marriage counselor, and he recommends that they go on this uh, retreat to this uh, beautiful uh, vacation home in the, it looks like the Sonoma Valley, and uh, it, there's all sorts of other couples who it's worked wonders for, and they're just supposed to spend a weekend together and reconnect. And they go and visit the guest house, and they realize that whenever one of them enters the guest house alone, they encounter a doppelganger of the other member of the couple. And the doppelganger is just a better version oh, of the person they fell in love with. the worst doppelganger. The worst doppelganger, like you, but everything that the other person wants them to be. Um, and uh, it's uh, you go through the process of discovery as they figure out the rules of how this works, but it's more about the you know, what what more devastating possible thing uh, could happen to a couple in trouble. Uh, and uh, that's all I will say, except that I uh, really like that, and I would urge you to check it out. So uh, you, it, it's, uh, like I said, it's got a whole sort of a Twilight Zone uh, vibe, but it was marketed as an indie movie, so people in the nerdosphere may not know it. So check it out, The One I Love, directed by Charlie McDowell. Okay. Uh, my first recommendation is a game. Uh, it is a game that I played with uh, young John Kavalik and Will Hindmarch a while back called Colt Express. Um, it is designed by Christophe Rambeau and published by Asmodee, among other people. It uh, came out, I guess, last year, and it is a train robbery game. And it takes uh, the sort of pre-programmed movement of Robo Rally and makes it not annoying as hell, which is a start. It also plays on a little cardboard model of a train that you get to build. And at the beginning, we were looking at the at the rules, which are, in the modern way of board games, terrible, um, and arguing about I'm how... I'm not sure if that's a modern uh, innovation. Yeah, well, they're, 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 they're getting worse. The terribleness of, of modern uh, uh, board game rules is a special kind of terribleness. And it seems you'll look it up on YouTube. Now. Exactly, I think so. And a lot of it also, in fairness, is because you're translating stuff from foreign languages, and it can be hard to express uh, nuances of meaning, and the solution often is to overwrite as opposed to write correctly the first time. That said, we get the little pieces put together, uh, which would have been fun if we had known how much fun the game was going to be. And if you think of it as, oh, I get to put together little cardboard trains, it's actually kind of fun. And then once we start playing the game, uh, having sussed out the rules, the gameplay turns out to be really fun and really interesting, and... The, 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 the curve of learning the game is steep enough that over the course of the game, you figure out what's going on and you become a better player of it by the end and you immediately want to play again because now you have it figured out. And again, uh, because it's got that robo-rally simultaneous movement, there is a very strong limit to how much you can pre-plan any of your actions. So the randomness comes primarily from other players. There, there is still... Um, uh, uh, some sorts of, of, of randomness in it, but a lot of it is just you're placed at this position, you go through your little mechanical activities, and then as you play your cards, that drives the, 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 the story forward. It's, um, a great, uh, a, a great little game, and 
uh, you pick up little treasures that are just dotted around the train. There's a sheriff who will, uh, uh, shoot you if he sees you, so you can't uh, go through the top of the cart of the train if there's a sheriff. All kinds of little sort of special case rules, so it's a special case game. It's got a uh, managing your card hand. It's got a lot of little elements that all of them are part of other good games, and they're sort of linked together, like cars on a train, uh, cleverly in this game. And I, it's a game that I like possibly even better, because I began thinking I wouldn't like it, and it turned out I do like it. Um, the final uh, mechanic that I think is still a little kludgy. Uh, whoever fires the most bullets gets a thousand dollar bonus. And that really changes the score. And, uh, I think the goal is just to make sure that everyone has gunfights, which is fun. But I think there probably could have been a second pass that made that a cleaner mechanic. But even with that sort of kludgy thing at the end, the actual activity of playing the game is great fun. And, uh, I recommend Colt Express. I think it's a great deal of fun. And if you like train robberies or you like, uh, Robo Rally, but you'd rather play it in 40 minutes than an hour and a half. Uh, I would say pull out your Colt Express and see what you can do. Uh, well, uh, uh, from a game to a condiment, I'm going to recommend Pick a Peppa Sauce. Uh, that's uh, Pick hyphen A hyphen P E P P A. And this is a uh, treasured condiment of Jamaica, so look for it in your local purveyor of Caribbean foods. And uh, basically think of a uh, tropical variation on uh, the sort of uh, HP sauce, the, the brown sauce of part of uh, the UK. Uh, but this is a little tangier, a little spicier, and is uh, makes a uh, uh, you can put it on a burger. Uh, there's all sorts of things, you can, whatever you would do with HP sauce, if you want a slightly zingier version of that. But it also makes a great... Uh, base for a dressing for a bean salad. So if you've got, uh, uh, you know, your uh, fresh tomatoes and your uh, uh, black-eyed peas or your navy beans or whatever and some scallions, you want to make a quick, uh, easy, healthy uh, salad and you want to trick it into being delicious, uh, put pickup pepper sauce on All it. All right. Does it uh, work good on as a marinade on chicken? Is it? Is it? Does it complement meat in that way? Or is I have it... not yet tested that theory, but I think it is a sound theory worth testing. Okay. And I would be surprised if it was not. Uh, All right. Logic. I mentioned this during the travel advisory uh, in Oklahoma, but I'm going to recommend it again um, because I don't know how uh, buried it got in all of the excitement of Oklahoma City is oh so pretty. People were beside themselves with excitement. Of course they were. Um, They were so beside themselves that they turned out to be hundreds of miles away in Chicago. But I will mention the horchata latte, which I had there, and I am informed by my slightly hipper friends. You can get, at certain places, uh, Jackalope uh, in Bridgeport in Chicago apparently does one really well. Uh, but the notion is, instead of putting milk in your latte, you put horchata, which is uh, the Mexican beverage, uh, delicious rice milk, which you often uh, heat up and make with cinnamon, so that it becomes cinnamon and milky and, and tasty and delicious. So it's like a rice you pudding put, you can drink? It's a drinkable rice pudding. So, so if you don't know about horchata, rush, 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 rush to your local Mexican uh, neighborhood or grocery store and pick it up. Um, it's often sold, uh, by carts on the street and that's probably when it's best because it's just, just brewed there, but you can get uh shelf stable horchata as well. And, um, uh, put that in your coffee instead of milk and make your, and put a lot of it cause you're making a latte. It's not a cream. It's not going to actually do for coffee what cream or milk does. But if you put coffee or, or better yet, espresso into it, oh my goodness, do you have a good day? Um, and horchata latte, I recommend without reservation. I am currently sourcing horchata so I can have it anytime I want instead of just when I'm in Pilsen or uh, in Oklahoma City, heaven forfend. 
Next up is a book of nonfiction called Stolen World, A Tale of Reptiles, Smugglers, and Skullduggery by Jenny Aaron Smith. Uh, this is a work of uh, journalism going into the uh, only very recently clamped down upon uh, world of uh, reptile collecting and animal smuggling. And it uh, sort of covers the uh, crazy fringe characters who uh, went all around the world uh, seeking to strip it of its rare snakes and tortoises and uh, possibly even an amphibian or two. And uh, there's and it's one of the really interesting things about the book is it underlines the extent to which the sort of respectable face of conservation that we associate with zoos is uh, much more recent in its implementation <laughs> than you might think. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, shady stuff uh, going on uh, under the veil uh, in, the, in the reptile house uh, comparatively recently. Uh, but it all, it's also sort of a fascinating um, look not only at these uh, sort of uh, uh, skeevy uh, characters and their obsessions, but also just the general uh, desire to collect and acquire something. And one of the things that it really underlines is the, uh, you know, if you're not a snake aficionado, the super rare snakes is like, oh, here's another kind of brown looking snake uh, that looks a lot like all these common brown looking snakes. But this one is from Uruguay or Borneo or, or something, and it's on the endangered list. So, of course, all sorts of American collectors uh, want theirs. And it's definitely about the sort of the lure of the forbidden. And once, uh, and in some cases, this illicit activity uh, led to the establishment of breeding colonies and uh, increased the numbers of the animals to the point where nobody wanted them anymore because they were no longer uh, rare and illegal. They were just you know, working their way back up to uh, uh, survival. And so it's a fascinating uh, portrait, uh, both of a criminal economy that you maybe uh, haven't really looked into, but also the uh, psychology of the people involved with it. And uh, one of the reasons it's a, a bygone era now is that increasingly uh, reptile collectors are like uh, dog fanciers in that now it's all about taking rare qualities of captive reptiles and interbreeding them to get crazy looking variants. And so uh, there's a, a whole new aesthetic hierarchy of, well, you've, you've got this crazy thing that doesn't exist in nature and it looks uh, really wild is now the way that you get status as a reptile collector and the, uh, the old uh, bit of uh, finding and stealing these endangered species has uh, fortunately faded away a little, or, or so the story goes. Well, it's gone underground. Is what's happened. Well, it was already or underground. More likely, yeah. I mean, but or more likely, it's it's just moved to uh, to China, right? Because they have a huge trade in parts of endangered animals anyway for traditional magic. And obviously, if you've got the sort of nouveau riche that they have in the Chinese uh, crony capitalist class, and any way to show it off is going to be a good way. And I think collecting dangerous or endangered animals is probably. I, and, I and suspect that the them. same thing is, and, and then eating them has has moved on into uh, China as as a status game, and we're probably going to find out that that's where the last Komodo dragon went someday. Yeah, this is definitely focused on uh, America. Yeah. Okay, my next recommendation is a 
young adult novel uh, by Michael Chabon, the author of uh, The Legend of Cavalier and Clay and many other fine uh, books that have caused him to appeal to our set. This one is a young adult novel about the matter of America, specifically baseball. And it provides a way for people of our type of gamers to maybe look into baseball and look into uh, what makes it uh, mythical, because obviously baseball has its own mythologies and its own magical stories. You can read uh, Bernard Malamud's The Natural, which I also recommend doing, or just see the movie, which I also recommend doing for a sort of baseball as grail myth. This is baseball as... Uh, what literally the, the Mexican, uh, uh, pre-Columbian Mexicans believed that the ball game was necessary to keep the world going and that you had to play Olamatsli, which was their game, uh, in order to keep the world functioning correctly at all. Um, Summerland is Chabon's argument that you have to play baseball to keep the world from what his characters call Ragged Rock, uh, which is, of course, a uh, drifting of Ragnarok. And all of the characters are sort of drifts of myths, many of them uh, Norse, but many of them also Native American, many of them uh, being American-American. Uh, um, so you meet like Paul Bunyan and Joe Magarak and uh, Stagger Lee and Mike Fink and John Henry are in there. Uh, even Shamblow from C.L. Moore's uh, novel shows up sort of. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff stirred into the pot, but at its base, it's a sports story. It's about a guy who is terrible at baseball, who must become good at baseball uh, with his um, uh, team members, Thor and Jennifer T. Rideout and a where Fox named Cutbelly to defeat Coyote's team, uh, which is going to uh, destroy the pole that holds up the universe, the Lodge Pole, which is either Yggdrasil or the Putomatan or any number of other possibilities uh, from uh, from mythology. And uh, everything hangs on a baseball game. And it is 500 pages, so it seems like it would be really long. Uh, for, uh, but in the era where, you know, a Harry Potter novel can be like 800 pages, it obviously isn't. Um, and it's terrific. It's just really, really good. I like it almost better than I like anything else Chabon has done. It's very, very clever. It's, if you read American Gods and like me thought, well, this is barely about America at all. And also the gods are wrong. Um, <laughs> you will read this and say, that's the novel that I thought I was getting with American Gods and also baseball. Um, and, uh, it's just terrific. It, it got a bad review by the New York Times, bizarrely enough. But again, the New York Times is only half right about culture anyway. But I would recommend, uh, anyone who is, who is a fan of that sort of, um, mixed master mythology, your sort of, uh, uh, Silverlock type, uh, approach to myth and arts. Uh, it takes it into a, a road trip. It takes it into baseball. It takes it into the, uh, coming of age novel. It's everything. Uh, pulled together by a guy who is, it turns out, really, really good at the structural uh, necessities of the modern novel. And in this particular case, I think that he is allowing himself a little more freedom to sort of wig out because he's writing a young adult book. And I think with Chabon, he always needs to be encouraged to go a little crazier rather than to uh, pull himself back up into his New York Times approved bestseller mode. And so I recommend Summerland whether you like baseball or not, because if you don't, I suspect at the end of it, you'll like it better. And that is necessary to keep the world from being destroyed. Well, if we're ending on something that makes you actually like baseball, we can't possibly top that. So it's time to shut down the recommendation engine until we need to rev it up again. We 
now trudge our way up the cobweb stairs, the portrait of Madame Blavatsky glowering down upon us, and we open the door of the parlor of the consulting occultist, and we sit across from him uh, as he uh, leans back with a glass of sherry in his hand in his creaky leather chair and is about to tell us about something that is not in any way fusty, unlike every other detail I just listed, but it's instead modern and new and uh, uh, crazy and fractal, and that is, at the request of our pal Wade Rocket, chaos magic. Uh, Ken, if you're going to give us uh, the uh, very 101 on chaos magic, starting with what the heck is it, uh, where do you start? You start where chaos magic itself started, to the extent that it can be said to have started. Um, because it's chaotic. Because it's chaotic. Well, also because... If the more you look into it, the more you realize this isn't new. You're just doing voodoo wrong. <laughs> but a guy named Peter J. Carroll uh, wrote a book in 1978 called Liber Null, the Book of Nothing, um, which is a terrific book. Um, and it attempts to explain all magic as opposed to just uh, chaos magic. But it explains all magic as basically bits and pieces of all traditions that you can pull together to create this full overarching post-modern, literally post-modern tradition. And he expanded on that in the next uh, book of the set called Psychonaut. Um, and then finally wrote a book it, after it had been dubbed Chaos Magic, I think by Phil Hine, but I'm not super certain who actually coined the phrase. Um, he came out with a book actually called Liber Chaos in 1992. And that sort of nails down what he considers to be the irrefutable principles, the absolute things you have to do to be doing chaos magic, which of course means at that point, chaos magic ended much like, um, uh, once you started having rules for punk, punk was over. Um, the same thing I think is true of chaos magic, but you can have a set of characteristics that sort of people who still do chaos magic think of much like people who are still doing punk music think of when they think of what they're doing. And the key, uh, perhaps ironically is to think only of what you're doing. The point of chaos magic is to believe something uh, magical, to sort of at the exclusion of all other belief structures. And that's why you see chaos magicians sort of summoning Lovecraft monsters, is because it's a fictional creation. They know it's fictional, but if they can believe hard enough to believe in their heart that uh, Cthulhu exists, then they can... Or the cut-ups from over the edge. Or the cut-ups from the, over the edge. Th then they can touch that world and manifest it in magical form. Uh, and you don't have to believe in any one thing. You can believe in a bunch of different things, depending on what you want to do magically. And there are methodologies that drive that uh, deliberately anonymized magical tradition. Uh, the sigil is a big part of chaos magic, where you write down literally what you want, uh, making the letters go over and over and over each other until you have basically a big blotch of serifs. And that act of writing a sigil, because it is so obvious and so directed, becomes sort of the core element of chaos magic. And then as you're doing your sigil writing, you've decided ahead of time that what you really think uh, you need to talk to to make this happen is Captain Hook from Peter Pan or Dionysus or uh, St. Anthony of Padua or whatever. And you just then either borrow the tradition around that uh, to, uh, according to what, um, Libernal lays out as the fundamental principles of magic, which are basically your similarity and contagion and names and all that good old Fraserian haha. Um, but the core is to use these things to build you into the state of 
entire belief. And this uh, state is what uh, Peter Carroll calls the Gnostic state. And uh, it derives from the notion that your belief is all that is necessary to make something happen. And the more impossible the thing you're trying to believe, the better. Exactly. And that um, you're not drawing on an outside force. You're drawing entirely on an inside force because your belief is what defines the universe. Um, uh, Carol, uh, read, like a lot of people read, um, uh, Thomas Kuhn's, um, uh, paradigm shifts stuff and, uh, which was about the way that science moves forward. Um, and, um, said, well, why not do it faster and more magic-y? And if you can change your own paradigm shift over your, your own paradigm over and over and over, pretty soon you'll believe nothing. And that means it'll be easier to reset you to whatever you need to believe at this given moment. Um, you can, um, uh, get, get to this belief spot in any number of ways. You can do it with the old fashioned traditional fasting and drugs and, um, uh, hip hypnosis, or you can do it through, um, the sort of upper version of, uh, of, uh, of stimulation and dancing around and taking E and, uh, chanting and hyperventilation and hallucinogens, or you can do it sort of on an offhand moment when you catch the universe not looking. It's like, da, 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 Anibus, give me the power. And then it just sort of pops in and pops out. And the better you are at unbelieving everything, the better you can be at believing something for the moment that it takes to cast that magical effect. And so that's basically what it is. And if you look at the actual practices of it, it's kind of the, like I say, it's the same thing that voodoo is. Voodoo is, uh, there are, the world is full of invisibles, uh, full of, um, in, invisible entities, uh, that can do you favors as long as you invite them in. And just because you invited in Gede, the death Loa to do something for you, doesn't mean you're a devotee of Gede. You don't believe he's the best Loa. You just need him now for that thing. And then you can send him away and invite in Azuli, uh, the love Loa for another thing. And you can invite in Dambala for healing, or you can invite in Legba to tell you the future. And it's just whichever thing you need, there's a Loa that is sort of, um, pre-existing to, uh, bring it to you. And again, like chaos magic, you bring the Loa into yourself. You allow it to ride you in the traditional vernacular, but there's lots of other interpretations of, of, of voodoo magic, uh, going forward. And so that is sort of also creating belief because you're bringing your mindset and your spirit into alignment with this specific truth, uh, of this given Loa. And, this, of course, has been going on for hundreds of years before some British guy made up chaos magic. And everything that they say chaos magic is good for or that it, uh, or that it functions like is pretty much something that has been going on in Haiti since the 1800s. Right. Cause there's only so many things yeah. that people want to magically evoke. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, luck, uh, money, romance, uh, sex, uh, uh, curses to your uh, enemies uh, mm -hmm. healing and so uh you it's going to be you're going to be pretty hard pressed to think of a new thing to want now the thing about the loas of course is they all come pre-programmed with those different elements and each one you know it's a list of entities and each one is in charge of a different department uh, if you are focusing on uh yog sothoth or robin hood uh what is it that you are uh evoking well, if you're, you know, focusing on Yogg-Sothoth or Robin Hood, you're evoking whatever you think, ideally, in the chaos magical paradigm, whatever you believe Yogg-Sothoth and Robin Hood can bring you at that moment. So, because you've read your Lovecraft, you say, Yogg-Sothoth breaks down barriers to the other spheres. So, what I want to do is I need to 
bring Yagsothoth into connection with me so that I can talk to other gods or so that I can look into the uh, magnetic universe that exists on the other side of this one or so I can engage in some sort of transcendent activity. That's what Yagsothoth brings you. Robin Hood might simply be, um, I feel like I want to be able to, uh, I mean, at the base, you may win an archery competition, but something else I want to, I want to, I want to, uh, take down this evil corporation that's oppressing, you know, us here in the street. And so I'm going to invoke Robin Hood. I'm going to bring Robin Hood into me and he will give me a, a cunning plan or he will show me or he'll just provide me that extra dollop of luck and Errol Flynn charm that will let me beat this corporation, uh, which is, of course, the rich. And I, by definition, because I'm not um, uh, uh, Monsanto, am poor. And uh, regardless of the merits of my individual contest, Robin Hood will be on my side and I can bring Robin Hood into my uh, into my consciousness uh, and bring myself into a set of uh, such uh, gnosis and such belief that I can make myself think that Robin Hood can change the universe and that I can commune with Robin Hood and allow the universe to change in that fashion. So does this mean that the secret is chaos magic with fewer action figures and more Chardonnay? Um, the secret? Uh, this is the uh, sort of superpower of positive thinking thing that uh, Oprah briefly promoted. Sure. I mean, the power of positive thinking is basically, and I'm sure Crowley probably even said that because he's coterminous with uh, Edmund Vincent Peale and the rest of it, um, is the uh, is is basically a, a magical act in its own way, just like um, Kuwaitism is every day and in every way. Life is getting better. That's nothing but a ritual mantra that you chant to bring about change. And Crowley says any act of the will to bring about change in the world is magic. Um, and so certainly the power of positive thinking or the seven habits of highly effective people or whatever it is, those are magical rituals by uh, Crowley's standards. And you can certainly, uh, what do I want to say? Um, suburbanize chaos magic down to that level and only be, you know, trying to sort of um, uh, bring about these changes because you've got a set, a limited set of gnosis that you go to when you say, well, now that I've thought important thoughts about uh, my uh, business career, uh, that was my magical ritual uh, or my secret ritual or whatever it is. And then you just move on uh, with your life. I think chaos magic almost has to begin, however, by denying other realities. And most of the people in the secret, they, they, the reason they want the secret is because they want to accept the reality that is uh, 21st century or 20th century uh, democratic capitalist America, Britain, civilized life. They want, you know, they want the secret not to, you know, um, uh, engage in communion with the Sothoth. They want a promotion or they want their kids to get into a good school or they want their lawn to look nice. I mean, that's, it's, it's, that's a very sort of domestic version of it. So I think chaos magic, because it requires you to break out of a set of beliefs, um, in theory, a proper chaos magician, after having summoned up Robin Hood to take down Monsanto, should then maybe summon up, um, uh, Dagon to make Monsanto strong because if they believe Monsanto is always evil, they've sort of violated the tenets of, of chaos magic, I think. So, uh, the secret, uh, just to footnote a little, is a 2006 uh, self help book, or rather a, a New Age text uh, packaged as self-help uh, by an Australian author named uh, Rhonda Byrne. And uh, it's uh, it was pretty big for a while in, in Oprah circles. Uh, so uh, I guess the difference then is that chaos magic is antinomian and the secret is nomian, or the chaos magic has to uh, compensate for 
everything it does by putting into into balance. I think that the chaos magic, I mean, again, uh, chaos magic, like many philosophies, <laughs> most people who follow it only follow it down the road to where they wanted to go in the first place, and they don't keep following it. Um, most chaos magic is antinomian because most chaos magicians are antinomian. It is not because um, chaos magic is inherently antinomian. It, by definition, is anomian, right? If all realities are true, you can't very well say, well, chaos magic always hates the man. Well, nope. If all realities are true, the man is right half the time um, or some amount of the time. So you're, you're already sort of, um, you know, betrayed your lack of proper chaos magical belief when you... Um, are only using it on one side of the fence. Uh, that would be my uh, sort of um, outsider's perspective on the philosophy of it. Um, certainly, I think that, like most magic, you wind up doing it based on the kind of person you are and the kinds of things you want to have happen rather than anything inherent one way or the other about the magic. I mean, short of actually summoning up demons uh, with, Goetis, with, with Goetia, uh, most magic is like any other technology. It can be used for good. It can be used for bad. And white magic and black magic are terms about the ends, not terms, not terms about the means. And I think the same thing is true about chaos magic, that it really is in this case, a term about the means because the end is, uh, not followed all the way through, uh, by anyone who does it. Because again, who's got that kind of time and who wants to do magic to help Monsanto for God's sake. Now, is this, uh, as au courant, is it once were, is this a, uh, to the extent that any uh, occult uh, movement can be said to be burgeoning? Is it still burgeoning, or has it uh, uh, faded away in favor of uh, other newer or older forms? I think it is. it, it was once burgeoning. It burgeoned uh, back in the uh, 80s uh, when it was first being published and when everyone was being very excited about it. And then I think it re-burgeoned when Grant Morrison sort of gave it a, a new lease on life by announcing that he was a chaos magician, uh, when he was talking about, um, how he brought used magic to prevent the in invisibles from being canceled and all the other stuff. So he sort of brought it into a new set of counterculture, uh, or, or, um, side culture, uh, that would not have maybe encountered it previously. And I think as long as Grant Morrison stayed hip, um, it sort of stayed hip among them. I think proper occultists have sort of either internalized it and moved on or have basically said what I said, you're not actually bringing anything except a, a marketing label and a couple of technologies to what is, as I say, voodoo only without the point of it. Um, I, I, I don't know what modern day magicians are up to. I think Crowleyanism is sort of to the extent that anything is, is still sort of tranking along. I think a lot of them are still in that Crowley and post Crowleyan tradition as opposed to really following uh, chaos magic, unless they are, as I say, uh, Grant Morrison uh, uh, disciples or, or possibly William S. Burroughs disciples and have a philosophical uh, commitment to that sort of um, anarchic, uh, uh, no realism exists, nihilistic philosophy, uh, as opposed to just, you know, the standard sort of, I want to have sex with undergraduates type magician. Right. And it's appeal to... Uh role players who want to have characters who are chaos magicians, I think doesn't require a lot of explanation. It's uh, somebody you can use to associate the chrome of your crunchy bits with uh, uh, Cthulhu. So you can add your Cthulhu to any game or any other sort of pop culture uh, figure. And it gives sort of a postmodern gloss to something that uh, culturally uh, otherwise is sort of uh, rooted in the twenties and thirties. Uh, is there a, a particular treatment in 
uh, fiction or gaming of Chaos Magic that uh, you think is particularly salient? I'm not sure that there really is, because the trouble with Chaos Magic um, is, uh, as a role-playing game construct, is that it is designed to be the go-everywhere-do-everything-believe-anything package. So it really comes across in game mechanics as a crock. It's like, oh, my character's a Chaos Magician, which means I can do all the kinds of magic and worship all the gods and get all the pluses and never have a minus. So it really is... It, it's the it's the crocked uh, magic system by and large, right? So, so to uncrock it, you have to say, well, you have to specialize mm-hmm. in three pop culture images that you can evoke. Right. So you you can evoke Yarathotep and uh, uh, Robin Hood and Vincent Bugs Bunny Price and Popeye. Right. Yeah. Um, and again, that sort of takes your chaos magic and, and dials it way back. Um, I think that uh, fictionally, still the best chaos magic is sort of the stuff Grant Morrison writes around in the letter columns of the Invisibles. I think if you read the Invisibles, you get a a real chaos magical sense of what the world looks like to a proper chaos magician. Because again, Grant Morrison is a terrific writer. Um, I really like his comics and uh, something like the Invisibles that is deliberately postmodern, that is deliberately taking from all strands of pop culture and feeding it through this redonkulous conspiracy narrative. I think that that's a good way to look at what a chaos magical world might look like. And I'm pretty sure that the, 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 the uh, King mob and his buddies do chaos magic rituals in the course of the, uh, in the course of the story. So you'll get to see a little of it happen, um, in an exciting way. Um, also, I, I have to say that Liber Null and Psychonaut and Liber Chaos, uh, unlike most magical books, they're not badly written. Um, you can read those in very little time. Uh, they're very accessible. And, uh, because, uh, Peter Carroll begins by trying to write a summa of all magic, it actually serves as kind of a good introduction. I think it's better than Bonowitz's real magic for that, uh, in, in a lot of ways, although obviously it goes off the philosophical deep end, but at some level, you're doing magic, dude. Your philosophical, your, your philosophical pool needs draining and, um, uh, scrubbing for barnacles to begin with. Uh, well, if that isn't an epigram, I don't know what is. And if we've ended on an epigram, we've ended another podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep us in tchotchkes by hitting the donate button at KenandRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Join such illustrious returning donors as... Rick Neal. And Andrew Miller. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or Hollow Earth entrance by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>